Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. It's a twilight because there's so much smoke and ash in the air that there's very limited light. In 2019, Jack Egan's life literally went up in flames. There is nothing left but grey, ash and black trees and, and, and shrubs. Jack was caught in what would become some of the worst bushfires in Australian history. I headed off to look for my partner and I knew that the stakes were pretty high because one cannot imagine that a human could survive in that sort of environment. And I was, I was actually looking for her body on that journey. Those wildfires of the 2019-2020 season were part of a series of extreme weather events that were in some part at least exacerbated by an El Nino. El Nino describes an unusual warming of waters on the surface of the eastern Pacific Ocean. It's a phenomenon that happens every four to seven years – and it has a big impact on weather systems all around the world. In June of this year, the latest El Nino officially started, and it's already having devastating impacts. What can the world expect as this El Nino makes its presence felt? And what can this climate system tell scientists about future weather in a warming world? This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, the return of El Nino. How worried should we be? In 2019, Jack Egan was living in North Rosedale, a quaint town in southern Australia, surrounded by woodland and just a few metres from a coastline dotted with rocky beaches and caves. On the morning of December the 31st that year, though, he woke up to find his world crashing down around him. We got a text at 6am from the Rural Fire Service saying, look, activate your bushfire plan now. My partner and I leapt out of bed, started wetting down our house and moved any remaining inflammable objects away from the house. It approached as a loud roar with flames 30 to 40 feet up trees. My uh, partner decided she wasn't for <laughs> putting up with too much more of this, so she took off and I stayed with in the house and 
also outside the house, putting out small spot fires that erupted as the embers came to ground and it was an absolute firestorm. Just swirling winds, gusting at perhaps up to 100 kilometres an hour, blowing embers as the fire approached horizontally past our home. And embers are not just little sparks, some of them can be as big as your forearm, just burning bits of bark and branch and leaf. The house next door from us had gone up like a great torch and the fire from that had ignited the front corner of our timber veranda. I had no water to put on that and just had to let that fire take over. I knew the house would just burn down to nothing, so I headed off to look for my partner and had trouble finding her because she hadn't been able to take her planned route because of, well, 30-foot-high flames. She could have been caught by the fire if she'd gone down to our little local beach as planned, which is only about a sort of 75-metre walk. Look, I was feeling very worried for her. One cannot imagine that a human could survive in that sort of environment. I was in shock and dazed confusion as to what to do next when I, when I couldn't find her on my initial searches. Some other neighbours arrived back in the street at that point and there I learned that Kath had actually um, been taken home by some friendly people, uh, one of whom was a doctor who could see she was suffering from potential hypothermia because she'd run into the water, <laughs> been afraid of the fire when she arrived at the beach. And I headed off for that address, but in the meantime, she was coming back to the beach. She came through the sand dunes, through some burnt casuarina trees, and uh, we ran towards each other and embraced with relief. <laughs> and it was like a scene from a great romantic movie. Jack's story is just one of many that emerged from the wreckage of the Black Summer that started in 2019 and carried on into the following year. Fires swept across 240,000 square kilometres of the Australian bush, one of the most devastating summers in the country's history. The fires that summer were driven in part by an El Nino taking place that year. So El Nino is a fluctuation in global weather patterns that occurs every about four to seven years. That's Martin van Elst, a professor of climate and disaster resilience at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. He's also the director of the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute. And it's an interplay between stuff happening in the oceans and stuff happening in the atmosphere, usually starting off in the Pacific Ocean. So it's called El Nino because it peaks around Christmas time off the coast of Peru but it's really a much bigger blob of water that moves in the Pacific Ocean and triggers changes in wind and weather patterns all around the world, or at least in most places around the world, which you then see for several months up to a year, sometimes lasting a little bit longer, in typical patterns 
of odd weather around the world. And once again, it dissipates again after a couple of months or a year and then can be sort of off for a while. And then it may reappear again after a few years, typically four to seven years. So it's not exactly like the seasons where every year you know exactly what to expect. But otherwise, in a way, you could compare it a little bit to what we're seeing every year with winter turning into spring, turning into summer. Different weather conditions in every season that you can sort of expect. But for any summer day, you still don't know exactly what the weather is going to be. Similarly with El Nino, you know that there is going to be that phase of that warm ocean water appearing off the coast of Peru and then having these seasonal effects in a way all around the world for a number of months and then moving away again into the sort of regular season of the average weather around the world again. Okay, so that's El Nino, but people often talk about its twin as well, La Nina. Can you just tell me what that is? So La Nina is in a way the opposite of El Nino, and they're both part of what is now called the El Nino Southern Oscillation Cycle. And that is the sort of four to seven year pattern of the two changing roles. So you may be in a neutral phase between the two, you may be in the El Nino phase that we're heading into now, or you may be into the La Nina phase, which is sort of the reverse. And it's essentially that, that blob of water moving around in the Pacific Ocean with the warmer waters rising up and coming closer to the coast of Peru, that's El Nino. The reverse, when that blob is moving away and it's relatively cold waters in that area, is what we call La Nina. You mentioned odd patterns. Can you just briefly explain what you mean by odd patterns and where they occur? So the first part of the pattern, that is also how we measure, how we describe in a way whether we're in an El Nino phase, has to do with this water in the Pacific Ocean. So we measure the difference in ocean temperature between two locations, and that is one of the ways in which we indicate whether we're in that El Nino phase. But that then affects, and in a way is also driven by, effects in the atmosphere. So changes in the trade winds, for instance. And that has an effect on weather around the world. So not just around the Pacific Ocean, but for instance, also in Indonesia and in Africa at different times of the year. So the effects of El Nino don't play out on exactly the same moment everywhere around the world. So there are the so-called teleconnections, which occur across space and across time. And they can range from typical deviations in temperature. So it typically being hotter or colder. It can be differences in rainfall patterns. So for instance, the dryness in Indonesia and the higher chance of fire weather. So the forest fires that may occur there are an example of that. It can also lead to shifts in storm tracks. So some places might more often get tropical cyclones or hurricanes, as they're called in other places, than in a normal season. And that allows you to prepare to some extent for what might be coming if you know you're heading into an El Nino season. Can you give me some of the context of this current El Nino? We've not had one for a few years. And how does that sort of influence what might happen now? So indeed, we've been in a lull in terms of El Ninos, but actually we've been in a sort of repeat pattern of La Ninas for several years in a row, which is quite uncommon. So in that sense, again, this El Nino is going to be one to watch also for climate scientists. What that tends to do, so during La Nina years, it tends to be slightly colder on average. It hasn't been particularly cold, partly because global warming has continued. So we've not been in record cold years at all in the past couple of years. We've been close to record hot global average, year average temperatures also in the past years. But we are expecting a year where essentially we're going to get the boost of the El Nino on top of the already rising global temperatures with global warming. 
So that is one thing to look out for. Secondly, then, there is the question of the ocean dynamics, where in a way that suppression of temperatures during La Nina means that some of that heat gets stored in the oceans in a way. And one of the questions that scientists are asking is, what is it going to do to the dynamics of the ocean atmosphere system now heading into that El Nino? That also makes it a little bit more unpredictable than usual. The thing that climate scientists are watching now is, is it going to be a normal El Nino? Or are we going to be seeing things that we didn't yet expect in light of it following the three La Ninas that we haven't really seen before like this, and in light of it coming on top of global warming? As well as the fact that there's been three La Ninas and there's this energy sort of stored up, I guess, in the oceans that perhaps could influence what happens over the next year. Are there any other weather systems that people should be looking out for? Are there any other sort of patterns that might exacerbate the El Nino this year? Yes, there are always other patterns also in the ocean. The Indian Ocean Dipole is one factor, for instance, that plays together with El Nino and La Nina cycles in terms of the weather in parts of Africa, East Africa in particular. Now, in a way, the phase that we may be heading into now might be good news there because we've had bad droughts there for several years. That's been one of the concerns. And those have partly been associated with La Nina, actually. Of course, the concern is now, if we would get more rain, will it come as nice, good, productive rain? Or will it come in very heavy rainfall events with basically too much rain and then the flooding that actually causes further havoc in the region, rather than alleviating the drought that they've seen for several years? But again, in those regions, you would be looking at the interplay of various climate phenomena, including that Indian Ocean Dipole. And the same is true in several other places on Earth. Okay, then. So what kinds of extreme weather events do you think we can be expecting in this El Nino? Well, once again, it's difficult to give a very precise, guaranteed extreme for one place on Earth, right? Extremes, by definition, also during an El Nino phase, and similarly during global warming, will remain things that are sort of at the extreme end of a spectrum. But there are certain standard patterns where you see that risk is elevated compared to normal. So it was not purely by coincidence that we saw the Australian fire risk elevated, partly due to global warming and partly due to the past fairly moderate El Nino that we had at the time of those massive wildfires. Similarly, I would be concerned about the risk of fires in Indonesia, for instance. If I were in a storm-affected region, I would be taking care now. In some places, the storm risk may be lower. In some places, it may be higher. So storms may be more intense. Storm tracks may be also moving into different places. And there's already been discussion about the storm that hit California. Very unusual. But if those things do happen, it has tended to be in an El Nino situation. So that's already an example of something odd in a way that is still not a guarantee to happen during an El Nino, but where the chances are being affected. So it's really risk management still, also during an El Nino, but it's about using the information on top of the sort of average conditions and the outliers you get during average conditions. Right now, we have a slightly higher risk of certain outliers, and that's something we can prepare for. As Martin explained, El Nino has all kinds of effects on the weather. Floods and droughts, fires and hurricanes. It's always difficult, though, to predict exactly where in the world those effects will be felt. Right now, for example, Florida is dealing with the consequences of a massive storm, Hurricane Idalia. The links between El Nino and the Atlantic hurricane season are hard to unpick. But in the rest of the world, dire effects may soon become clear. My colleagues Katrin Brahik, The Economist's environment editor, and our reporter Rachel Dobbs have been looking into those effects. Katrin told me why this El Nino event could be so significant. 
we've been waiting for it for a while because three successive La Niñas is unusual. People have been expecting those patterns to end for some time now. It's particularly worrying, I'd say, because where La Niña years tend to run cool, so the global warming that's happening in the background is somewhat masked by La Niña, El Niño years tend to run hot. And so you get hotter than average years globally. And of course, as our listeners will know, the climate is warming. And so El Niño actually amplifies background global warming. And this El Niño is on top of that, of course, the first strong El Niño that will have happened in a world that is 1.2 degrees, roughly warmer than pre-industrial. Now, that's going to be true with every new El Niño that happens as the world continues to warm. But nevertheless, that's got climatologists quite concerned for what the impacts might be. I've been speaking to people talking about unchartered waters for the year ahead. Katrine, just for some context, how bad have previous El Niños been? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first of all, no two El Niños are alike. And and that point is really worth emphasising because I think people think that you get an El Nino and you immediately tip into this sort of suite of disasters. You can have El Ninos that are relatively mild El Ninos. And ultimately, this all starts with that patch in the Eastern Pacific and how much hotter than the norm it actually gets. And so the reason for which we're attuned to this one really is because current forecasts suggest that we're headed towards an unusually strong or a strong El Nino. I think the latest forecast suggested that there was a 66% chance that this would be a strong El Nino. And what that means is that patch in the Pacific is 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer or more than 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than the average. Now, the last time we saw that was in 2015. We've had really in recent decades, shall we say, three strong events in the late 80s, the late 90s, in 2015, 2016, that have come with a suite of really disastrous extreme weather events. And climatologists are on watch right now to see if this is going to be another one of those. And Rachel, just how bad is it for things like the global food supply and and other things? So the last really strong El Nino was suitably worrying at the time that it was actually dubbed the Godzilla El Nino. It was really devastating for the countries that it hit the hardest. About 60 million people saw food shortages across Southern Africa, Latin America and Asia. Southeast Asia's rice crop tanked. Drought in South Africa meant that food production fell below the level that had been 20 years previously. There were really terrible fire seasons in both Indonesia and the Brazilian Amazon. By one estimate, fires in the Brazilian Amazon during that El Nino destroyed more than two million trees, which, because of the way that they act as a carbon sink, effectively released the same amount of carbon emissions as Australia, for example, produces in a year. And all of this, Alok, comes with massive health consequences as well. So fires in Indonesia, for instance, typically... What you can get is these really strong winds that blows the pollution from that over vast swathes of Asia, worsening air pollution and increasing the incidence of respiratory conditions as a result. And then, as Rachel can explain, there's also consequences for lots of infectious diseases as well as a result of more rainfall, hotter temperatures. So, Rachel, tell me more about those health impacts, please. So, El Ninos are associated with significant spikes in certain diseases. The 2015 one, for example, really drove disease, particularly across South America. The warmer, wetter weather meant that there was 
the worst outbreak of the Zika virus in 65 years. In general, transmission of diseases spread by vectors like mosquitoes is greatly increased in hot weather. Malaria in particular is extremely sensitive to temperature and they are also increased by periods of lots of rain because of the way that the vectors and the mosquitoes breed and also then ironically in certain situations in droughts because people keep water in buckets and so on. And simultaneously, really heavy rains have knock-on impacts for poor sanitation. They mean that you'll see the spread of more diarrheal diseases like cholera. After disasters, there's often overcrowding, which can have similar effects. And both of those then also can lead to malnutrition, which is kind of already impacted by food shortages in these sort of scenarios. Now, many listeners probably remember some of the impacts you've been talking about. But of course, El Niños actually benefit some regions of the world as well. There are milder Atlantic hurricane seasons whenever there's an El Nino. This year, that might not be the case. And of course, a hurricane is hitting America's southeast coast right now. But Katrine, would you just paint us a picture of the distribution of weather events in a typical El Nino year and the sort of variations that we see? Yeah, so El Nino sort of teleconnect these weather systems across the world. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be absolutely terrible for 12 months for everybody. So some regions can benefit. And so right now, for instance, we've got a situation in the Horn of Africa where they've suffered from protracted drought, which has affected their crop yields. El Nino is going to bring more rain to that region. So in effect, it's going to be breaking that drought, which is a good thing. Whether or not it turns out to be an uncontestably good thing depends on the strength, on the amount of that rain. So it could result in just better crops, or it could in fact result in floods and further damage their crops. Generally, the regions that are most affected are in the tropics and in the subtropics. So Europe doesn't feel massive effects of El Nino. The US can actually see slight positive effects as wetter weather increases their overall agricultural productivity. And in fact, after the 2015 El Nino, I think it was the International Monetary Fund that found a slight positive impact on global GDP as a result of the El Nino, which probably was linked to the American benefit. So it's a very mixed picture. I think the thing to remember really with El Nino is that the people often most affected by the worst of these impacts are the people who are least able to cope with those impacts. And those are the societies and countries in the tropics and in the subtropics. The one thing to remember with this El Nino, though, is that it will raise global average temperatures. And so the world as a whole is going to be hotter in the next 12 months. And this is because of that amplifying effect on climate change that's happening constantly in the background. And so there will, in this case, be a negative global impact. And we'll see that in heat records and heat waves. Rachel, you've been exploring these impacts. Tell me what kinds of impacts people are already seeing. So remembering that we are still in the very early stages of this event, there are a few impacts that are already in play. El Nino is actually linked to anchovies in Peru and the Peruvian government cancelled their first anchovy fishing season in June, which is actually a much bigger deal than it sounds. It's the largest fishery in the world and it's crucial for the global supply of stuff like fish meal and also for the Peruvian economy. And then now you're also starting to see an impact on the Indian monsoon. It should be noted that 
the beginning of this monsoon season in July was not being affected by El Nino. And in that period, you had really unusually heavy rains, particularly across the north of the country. But now that El Nino is kind of happening, that typically leads to drier monsoons. And so it looks like August and September will have less rainfall. What that has done is made the rain pattern across the monsoon really uneven, which risks driving down India's rice yield. The prospect of that meant that the Indian government actually banned all exports of non-basmati rice, which represents half of the annual exports of India, which provides 40% of the world's rice globally. And because yields in Thailand and Vietnam are also really threatened by El Nino, prices just spiralled. And countries that really heavily rely on it started really trying to snap up stocks. Indonesia, for example, increased its imports from Vietnam by 2,500% in the first part of the year. OK, so Katrine, we've explored the impact of previous El Ninos then. How bad do climatologists and weather forecasters think this one's going to be? So the current forecasts are that next year, I think it's very likely that we're going to see a record-setting year in terms of global average temperatures. I think there's also a chance that we might this year, by the way, because El Nino sort of bridges the end of the year. The conversations that I've had with climatologists around this have got me quite concerned, to be honest, that next year we could be approaching, say, 1.4 degrees C. Now, there's no certainty around that, but 1.4 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial would be really quite remarkable. Does that mean things like more wildfires, more droughts, more extreme weather, basically? Yeah. I mean, I think global heat is the one thing that's easiest to associate with these kinds of extreme weather events. So basically what El Nino does is it sort of supercharges the global climate with an additional burst of energy. And yes, that comes with more wildfires. The regions there that we're looking at are Australia, Indonesia, parts of Brazil, definitely more heat waves, I think. But again, you have to remember that there's climate change happening in the background here. None of this is just El Nino working on its own. And Rachel, you've talked about the impacts of previous El Ninos on the food supply. Do we have any sense of what the next El Nino will do for food supplies next year? So this is all speculative at this stage. One of the things that people are worried about is palm oil, which is predominantly produced in Indonesia and Malaysia. S&P Global estimates that Malaysian exports could fall by 20% if this El Nino is a strong event. Palm oil is actually extra important at the moment because it has been used to sub in for sunflower oil at various points since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, because that's where most of the sunflower oil previously was produced. Similarly, the impact of this El Nino on things like the Australian wheat outlook are being watched very closely. Australia produces more than 12% of the world's total, and that crop can be very affected by dry El Ninos. And because Russia has just pulled out of the grain deal, there are worries about the sort of output of wheat from the breadbasket region around Ukraine. And so, you know, the question will be whether or not Australia could fill in for that. And we discussed disease earlier as well. And obviously, since the last major El Nino, the pandemic has happened. And I just wonder, are health systems around the world prepared for what's coming with the disease burden that will come for the next El Nino? I mean, in short, no. And this is something that health agencies like the World Health Organization or Médecins Sans Frontières are particularly worried about. Health services are already severely, severely overstretched. The pandemic lockdowns meant that you had the biggest decline in things like vaccine drives for 30 years, and you saw outbreaks of 
diseases that we regard as highly preventable, like measles. People couldn't get to doctors, which then has kind of compounding effects. There was increases in TB for the first time in a very long time. And countries' health services were trying to deal with COVID-19, which means that they are depleted of resources that they would have now. And in the way that Kat has been talking about these effects sort of compounding on top of each other for the worst affected countries, it's the countries with the worst health systems that are going to be hit the hardest and are going to find it the hardest to respond. And so because of that, international agencies are trying to kind of pre-position stocks in those places, as well as trying to use seasonal predictions to think about things like where might be the most malnutrition, where might be the most food shortages, where might be the most outbreaks of cholera, and so on. Okay, we'll go on to talk about some of those impacts in a bit more depth in just a moment. First, though, I'd like to ask both of you to briefly tell me about some of the content you've really enjoyed from The Economist recently. Uh, Rachel, why don't you go first? So one that I thought was really excellent recently was Lessons from the Blaze that leveled Lahana, which was the wildfire in Maui by our colleague Aaron. And on a sort of very different note, a really fun one is in the Britain section and is on why it's easier to steal things from museums than people think, because everyone loves a heist story. I was going to steer clear of clubbing entirely and mention a really lovely review in our culture section of The Monkey King, which is this age-old story in China that's had a recent adaptation on Netflix. And I'm also halfway through a really brilliant long read in 1843 on writers in repressive regimes that I haven't finished yet, but is excellent so far. Okay, well, you can read all of that, as well as Katrine and Rachel's briefing on El Nino, on The Economist's website or app. Pabbage listeners can get a month of a digital subscription for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Coming up, as the tempest looms ever closer, what can people do to prepare? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today on Babbage, we're looking at the impact of El Nino, a band of warm water in the Pacific Ocean that's starting to affect the weather worldwide. We've just heard from our correspondents, Katrina and Rachel, about some of the risks that the current El Nino might bring with it. But as it turns out, some of these impacts are already underway. How are scientists and governments responding? Someone who's been tracking this year's El Nino is Chris Funk. He's the director of the Climate Hazard Centre at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And he works with an international team to help inform people who respond to weather and famine-related disasters. Chris told me how worried he is about the current El Nino. Alec, I'm very concerned because we are already seeing some extreme drought impacts in many food insecure countries, uh, in Ethiopia, Southern Sudan, Uganda, Central America, Colombia. The El Nino is already having its expected impacts in terms of 
producing some really quite severe droughts. And we're also seeing really extreme air temperatures across much of the planet that is exacerbating those droughts and desiccating plants. Chris, a strong El Nino will also have impacts on food security in various parts of the world. Can you just paint a picture of of that for us? What parts of the world are going to be stressed on that front? So right now in Ethiopia, there are 19 to 20 million extremely food insecure people and the rains are very poor across much of of the country. And that's a very big concern. And What we saw in 2015-16 was a drought in Ethiopia uh, followed by uh, widespread uh, rainfall deficits across southern Africa. And we're worried about a repeat of that as well later this year. And then in Central America, uh, conditions have been very dry and that's another big area of concern as well. So how can people in the affected regions begin to prepare for these sorts of devastating impacts? There are things that that farmers can do. And if we're going to have a lot of rain in Kenya in October and November, that can be good news for farmers. And they can plant crops that take more water or longer to grow and improve their yields they can get ready to store this tremendous amount of water that is likely to come and use it for lean seasons. When a country is facing drought, like will probably happen in Zimbabwe this year, farmers can grow crops that are less water thirsty and less prone to failure. And then again, at the national level, governments can prepare as well. Do you think that this El Nino is going to play a role in you know, informing governments and scientists of what a warmer world would look like. I mean, perhaps there's some solace to be taken from the fact that if these extreme events do happen, then it's a case for persuading more people that this is climate change and and, and associated effects are something to take very seriously in the future. Yes, you know, it seems strange, but in some ways it's better for us to experiencing these extremely warm years like we have now so that that can motivate us to really take seriously our emissions because this year in another decade or so will be a normal year and for somebody who's close to the data like I am it's really terrifying how quickly the atmosphere and the oceans are warming and there's a convolution between warming in the atmosphere and the oceans and kind of amplification of the extremity of normal weather and climate events. And we need to take that very seriously and we really need to act now to reduce our emissions. This ties into a broader discussion about funding to respond to natural disasters or crises driven by climate change. That's our correspondent, Rachel Dobbs again. Not all disasters happen randomly. Around 20% are actually regarded as being highly predictable. So that's stuff like hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico during hurricane season, or at least somewhat predictable. And despite that, historically, the world is very, very bad at sort of anticipating those disasters ahead of time and putting the resources in place before they actually happen. There has been a real push towards improving this across the last sort of five years. The Red Cross, for example, 
run sort of action programs which are put into place once certain thresholds are hit sort of almost automatically and it wants 25% of its disaster relief funding to be delivered in advance of any kind of event by 2025. The World Food Programme does similar things. The World Health Organization is now working directly with the World Meteorological Organization to try and make sure that, you know, health services have direct input from forecasters to kind of know what is happening, all of which is great and absolutely should be celebrated. But, you know, realistically, it isn't enough. Over the last few years, even with these systems in place, the amount of aid delivered in advance only covers a really, really tiny fraction of the people that need it. And almost always the world responds to humanitarian crises in a reactive way. And we are unfortunately going to see that across this El Nino cycle as well. Katrine, I guess that one positive we can take from our discussions is that people know that this is coming. Yes, we know this is coming. The ability of countries to prepare depends on the circumstances that they find themselves in already. And so countries that are already reeling from past disasters are not necessarily in a position to roll out elaborate El Nino preparedness plans and build up their resilience in preparation for the next six to 12 months. There's one piece of good news here, which is that since the last strong El Nino in 2015-2016, there's been a real development of the seasonal forecasts and an integration of those seasonal forecasts into humanitarian and disaster preparedness by groups like the Red Cross, Red Crescent, the World Health Organization, etc., Having said that, I think realistically, as a rule of thumb, we tend to respond to these things after the fact rather than build resilience before the fact. And Katrine, just finally, the El Nino we're expecting is going to be uh, you know, a big event. Uh, I just wonder how does it sort of fit into the context of the warmer world that um, we should be expecting as climate change continues? You know, Are there lessons that we can be learning from this? Unfortunately, I think the lesson is one that Many people know very well and far too many people don't know well enough or haven't fully grasped yet. And that's that preparedness pays, adaptation to climate impacts pays. And if you do front load your fending, then fewer people suffer and the bill ends up being smaller. Okay, Katrine, thank you very much for that. I'm no doubt we'll continue following the El Nino as it happens over the course of the coming months. Katrine, Rachel, thank you both very much for your time today. Thank you, Alok. Thanks, Alok. It's clear that the world needs to plan ahead for more frequent, extreme weather events. This is the unfortunate, catastrophic result of a warming world. That's never far from the minds of people like Jack Egan in Australia, who's at the front line of the climate crisis. The most important thing is to turn down the heat. If you've got a pot on the stove you turn down the heat in order to limit the damage of the pot boiling over. That's a very good analogy for what we are facing. There is no option apart from turning down the heat and the pace of climate change by doing our utmost to reduce emissions quickly. And that's been very much on my mind since those fires that took our home. Thanks to Jack Egan, Martin van Alst, Chris Funk and the economists Katrine Brahek, 
and Rachel Dobbs. And thank you for listening. Babbage is produced by Kunal Patel and Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producers this week were Marguerite Howell and Jason Palmer. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. How can people, companies, and society benefit from virtual worlds? Register now for Economist Impact's Metaverse Summit, taking place on October 10th in Los Angeles. You'll learn about opportunities for creators and brands to extend your reach and innovate, and respond to new risks. As an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 20% off with the code ECON20. So sign up now at metaverse.economist.com. 